This is the 96 AD podcast, episode 7, The State of Rome in 68 AD. The year 69 is one of the most complicated in history, and, lucky for us, one of the most well-documented in Roman history, but no one really talks about it. On the precipice of the disastrous year-long civil war was the Emperor Nero. He was losing friends by the day, feeling more and more insecure, and as the year went by, it seemed like revolt was not too far off. As everybody could kind of see Nero losing it, any powerful individual was ready to take power, and so revolts were really underway. And everyone certainly had gripes. They had justifiable complaints about the emperor. He had been a bad emperor for almost 15 years now. Everyone was done with it. Recall last episode, Nero killed his own mother. He brutally suppressed a Pisonian conspiracy in 65. He was accused of burning Rome. He preferred to perform on stage than governance. Many people had the right to be pissed. And I certainly understand the position of a powerful general or senator thinking that they could do better than this young aristocrat. There were so many of these men that think they could do better that it can get a bit out of hand. So, for this episode, we're simply going to talk about them. We're not going to talk about the year that much. There'll probably be another three episodes about that. By my count, there are at least 13 different centers of power. Large enough centers of power that they could hold the emperorship. They will all play a considerable role between April 68 and December 69. To give you the 30-second summary of the Year of the Four Emperors, here it is. Galba revolted against Nero. Everyone abandoned Nero and then he committed suicide. Galba took the city, but was really rough with his troops. This resulted in a rebellion in Gaul from Vitellius, and then Otho in the city killing him and taking government. Otho reigned just until Vitellius would arrive in Italy and depose him. Vitellius would then reign until Vespasian's armies would arrive from the east and depose him. Now, let's start to get into it. Firstly, there are the omnipresent political factions within the city of Rome that you'll see throughout all of Roman history, especially in the imperial period, and especially right now. Very simply put, the power was divided between the emperor, the senate, and the praetorian guard. By the end of Nero's reign, the senate and the praetorians would be scared and bought, respectively. They would be scared and bought enough to stay quiet. So Nero tentatively had control of the city, so he didn't have to worry about them or a deposition from within the city. But he had no control over the external powerful individuals that Rome had to offer. These external powerful individuals would come from the provinces. They would be governors, people who led legions, out far away where Nero couldn't suppress them. And once he tried to, they could just turn the armies on him. The big players for the coming year would be, and now prepare yourself, two of the three Spanish governors, the governor of Gallia Lugdunensis, and two successive governors of Germania Superior, the governor of Syria, a legionary force in the Balkans, the governor of Egypt, the governor of Judea. Don't worry, we'll get into them and I will explain where all these places are and what they all mean. But for now, just appreciate the fact that this list of governors quite literally represents just about every powerful place in the empire. East to west, north to south, every part of the empire was covered here, so everyone played a role. Nobody escaped the civil wars. They were pervasive, and ultimately every governor had to weigh in. And if they didn't guess correctly, or didn't guess at all, 
the troops might kill him because they might go a certain way. Every governor must have been terrified, especially the ones on the frontiers or the one in the center of the empire where all these armies would be running through. But the most self-assured of the group would proclaim themselves emperor or proclaim someone emperor. And these are the people that will follow. Truly, the civil war would have touched all aspects of Roman life. And ultimately, the side you took in the war could just come up to chance where you are when you're there. I've read that, supposedly, fathers and sons would end up in opposing armies to no fault of their own and no hatred for each other individually, but they had to kill each other on the battlefield. Let's start talking about all the individuals that made this happen. Let's first start on the institutions of Rome that I mentioned earlier. As I mentioned, it was a tug of war that an emperor had to engage in, and it was a game of participating in and placating both the Senate and the Praetorian Guard, and other parts of the military as well. Remember that the Praetorian Guard is the um, personal bodyguard of the emperor created by Augustus. It was actually a large force, maybe the size of a legion. They held the power because they were the army in Italy. They were the immediate military presence around the emperor. So if you wanted him killed, that's who you went to. If the Praetorians were not pleased, or if they simply found someone else who would pay them more or something, they'll just take over the emperor. So what happened with Caligula, for example. He was killed by the Praetorian Guard, and then they proclaimed Claudius, because he was the one who could profit them the most. Of course, it was easiest for the Praetorians to kill the emperor, since he was literally the bodyguard. They could make sure that he had no one protecting him. The Senate had less immediate power, and probably ultimately had less power in determining the emperor than the Praetorian Guard, but the total riches and influence of the men that sat on that council was easily enough to influence the revolts and coups of the city. So if you didn't support the Senate enough, you might end up like Domitian, who we'll see soon, killed by the members of his court. And so that's how you could see kind of both sides of this. The Praetorian guards killed Caligula, the Senate killed Domitian. Very different kinds of emperors, but the end was ultimately the same. Nero was then in a particularly rocky situation because he had just come off of purging senators. So all of them now lived in fear. They probably wouldn't kill him, but they were ready to. The Praetorians really wouldn't have had a reason to hate Nero. It seemed that their paycheck was always on time, and that's enough. But Nero encountered many military defeats and disasters, and with his bad fiscal abilities, who knows if their pay was still coming. So it seems to be the case that the Praetorians would have been particularly confident in him and would have been ready to switch sides at any time, but they wouldn't instigate it by no means. And so this is why the Praetorian guards wouldn't kill Nero. They would just leave him. So this was the political puzzle that an emperor had to solve. And really, the ability of the emperor lies in the ability to solve this puzzle. The best emperors solved it the best. Like Augustus, he was the best at placating the Senate. They loved him, so he had no problems there. And he had won massive victories, so he had no problems with the armies, so he had no worries. And what we'll see with the emperors that come up is we'll see their kind of unique approach to this problem, and the way that they approach it really tells us about their personality. Notoriously, Galba would enrage the Praetorians, and that would result in his death. Nero, by the time 68 AD rolled around, had executed many of his high-ranking officials, and lots of generals. So lots of the frontiers were poorly or inadequately staffed. It seems to be the case that Nero really feared the provincial generals, as he should. Nero probably appreciated his political reality, and knew that armies from the frontiers could be knocking on his doorstep soon. In addition, it's clear that Nero's spending, and the following taxation, 
came down hardest on the provincials, and the furthest provincials that Nero didn't particularly care about. The tax collectors were noted as especially cruel, and so the provinces that didn't see much of the emperor personally, and thought him distant, ultimately became treasonous. Spain, Gaul, and Africa in particular, started to not see Nero as their rightful ruler, and so that is where revolt would start. Nero definitely appreciated this, and so he knew it was important for him to appoint men that he could trust, and he would have to ensure that none of them became too individually strong. Even if you have a seditious governor, because there was always one of those around, if he didn't have the support or the troops to launch a revolt, he wouldn't, or at least couldn't, and you could squash it easily. And the main mistake that I see Nero having here is that he would leave men governing for far too long. A key factor in ensuring that a man does not become too powerful is to ensure that he does not spend too much time in one place. This simply is because it allows the legions and officials in that region to love him. And so you would have these legions that just absolutely adore this guy. And so when he tries to become emperor, they'll follow him to the ends of the world. And it lets them create a whole power base in the region. And once you spend a lot of time in a certain region of the empire, you'll know exactly what buttons to push to make you the most money. Because ultimately, that's what being a governor was about. You would serve in the government, losing all your money, spending on games and bribes. Then you'd be appointed as a governor, which gave you the chance to suck a province dry to pay you back for your work. And if you served as a governor of somewhere for eight years, you would know exactly what you needed to do to extract the most revenue without causing any problems. So you'd become immensely rich, powerful, and influential. And you become that somewhere not where Rome is. Because the emperor is the most influential person in Rome, but you get to be the most influential person somewhere else. You can't rival the emperor in Rome, but you could rival him somewhere else. And that is how you can make a claim for emperorship. Up until the very end, Nero spent time traveling to the east. He loved the Greek arts, of course. He loved performing and playing music. So the eastern part of the empire, mainly Greece, got to see the good side of the young emperor. But Nero had to tread very lightly on the other provinces, and who he appointed there. The rule I've been talking about of making sure that someone isn't in a region too long was violated mainly twice. Firstly, with a certain Servius Sulpicius Galba. Galba had been serving in Hispania Terraconensis for like eight years. This part of Spain is simply the part of Spain that borders the Mediterranean Sea. Spain at this time was divided into three provinces, and Terraconensis was the largest and obviously quite powerful, given that an imperial coup would come from here. During his seven or eight years in Spain, Galba had most definitely secured a large power base, and the seditious ideas may have been surrounding Galba for quite a while, maybe even from the beginning. It's clear that Galba had been contacting the governor of nearby Hispania Lusitania, a certain Marcus Salvius Otho, in addition to the governor of Gallia Lugdunensis, Gaius Julius Vindex. They'll both come into play soon. Galba's family line was extremely aristocratic, and it appears that Galba took much pride in them, ensuring that his family name, Servius Sulpicius, would be a part of his imperial name. Galba proudly presented himself as a descendant of consuls, some of the most prominent ones in history. Furthermore, in a move reminiscent of Julius Caesar, capitalizing on his claim to descend from Venus, Galba claims descendants from Jupiter. Famously, his great-grandfather was a legate and eventually an assassin of Julius Caesar. He served in Gaul. Galba had been on the inner circles of the Julio-Claudians, and mostly positively respected. And he had been around since the beginning. He was born in 3 BC. Galba is described constantly as a rough and tough leader, but he got the job done, and that's why everyone liked him. 
He was strict and somewhat cruel with his troops, but he could always be counted on to get the tough tasks of empire completed. And that's what he'd been doing for his 70 years of life. Surely this disposition won't cause any problems in his imperial career, right? With that foreshadowing out of the way, let's briefly discuss the two other figures. Firstly, the young Marcus Salvius Otho. Otho is quite interesting, and he's the most unique of the four emperors since the rest are just aristocratic old men. And when I say the young Marcus Salvius Otho, I mean young. He was only in his mid-30s at the time he became emperor. So let's discuss why the hell Otho is a governor at such a young age. If you'll recall from last episode, I talked about how Nero would spend lots of his time drinking and partying with his entourage and would roam the streets harassing citizens. Otho was a member of that entourage. Otho is a drinking buddy of the emperor and seems to have been one of his closest friends. In the late 50s, a particular event took place. This is one of the strangest things in Roman history. It seems that Nero was trying to reserve a particular girl to marry uh, Poppea, who would become his wife, while he was getting rid of his current one. So he married her to Otho in the meantime. But when the time came for Otho to divorce her so that she could then marry the emperor, he refused. So then Nero more or less banished Otho to Spain. He was sent to govern Hispania Lusitania mostly Portugal, and he governed it for roughly a decade. Otho's family wasn't as aristocratic as Galba. He claimed descendants from Etruscan royalty. His ancestors weren't big players until the Julio-Claudian dynasty, where his grandfather and father got close to the first few Julio-Claudian emperors, paving the way for young Otho to become close with the emperor Nero. He was supposedly Nero's confidant, one of his best friends, and took part, and perhaps encouraged, Nero's schemes for the first few years of his reign. So, thanks Otho for that. It could be said that Otho's decade in Western Hispania was a mistake. It allowed the somewhat disgruntled and aristocratic young man to build up a massive power base far off in the West and close to the seditious Galba. And Galba's position would become very interesting when, in 68 AD, he heard that Nero wanted him dead. So now we had Galba and Otho, who were pissed at Nero. In far-off Spain, we're all rich and we're all powerful. All we need is a revolt. And so this brings us to Gaius Julius Vindex. Vindex was the governor of Gallia Lugdunensis, though I've also seen that he was the governor of Gallia Aquitania, but I think that's just a bit of confusion. In any event, he was the governor of northwestern France. He descended from local royalty, from the south of France, so, was unlike most other governors, he was taking part in backroom discussions with the locals about the best moves for them. In this respect, he must have been a really good governor. He seemed to have had his people's best interests in mind, and the locals must have trusted him a lot to take part in their seditious meetings in the woods. Vindex was very rich, senatorial, and very Roman. Don't get it twisted, Vindex was not some Gallic nationalist. He was simply a disgruntled governor and rightfully disgruntled, like I said. He sought to appoint a new emperor. Vindex will instigate the year of the four emperors by revolting. Pointedly, he will not hail himself emperor. Instead, he would extend the invitation to nearby Galba. Gaul had been specifically targeted by the tax collectors of Nero, so Vindex would have overseen the emperor's incompetence in office and seen how it affected his provinces while seeing indifference from the emperor as he went off to Greece to play the liar. 
Vindex would start his revolt in late March 68, and by early April, Galba would be hailed emperor, and within two months of that, Nero would be dead. A far-off and early ally to Galba would be the prefect, the governor-lite of Egypt, Tiberius Julius Alexander. Alexander is quite interesting. As far as Jews go in Roman history, Alexander may just about be the most successful one. He was by all accounts very competent and capable. He rised to become prefect of Egypt when he was just like 40-ish. He was remarkably self-confident since he was only prefect for like three years before he pledged allegiance to Galba and then Vespasian. And he eventually launched the winning offensive in Italy, taking Rome. It cannot be understated how important Egypt is. Firstly, it held two legions. Secondly, it was one of the richest and most influential provinces that the empire had. Most of the food and cash for that matter was generated in Egypt, and the province quite literally carried the Mediterranean on its back. Augustus found the region to be extremely important after he added it to the empire, so he ensured that the emperor would always be the governor. This is why governors weren't appointed, but prefects were. They were men of lesser rank, so they just couldn't make themselves emperor. He couldn't appoint someone like Galba to run Egypt, because if Galba ran Egypt, it would be easy to start a revolt. But Alexander couldn't do that. At least not at this point in history. He just wasn't aristocratic enough. But, like I said, he was super confident. He was likely in contact with Galba from before the revolt of Vindex, and supported Galba from the second that Nero's head hit the floor. His support was crucial, and was probably a large factor in Galba feeling secure enough to launch a revolt. The initial revolt of Vindex would fail, because of a certain Lucius Virginius Rufus. Rufus was the governor of Germania Superior. Perhaps this could be described as like modern Switzerland, eastern France. It bordered the Rhine. The Rhine meant three things. Germanic tribes sat on the other side. Large Roman armies had to be present to stop them from crossing. And third, important generals led those armies. Generals on the Rhine River, as well as the Danube River and the Parthian Desert in the east, had the highest ceiling of power since they could add considerable military victories to their resume. Their troops would love them for it. They would get spoils and they'd be celebrated by the whole empire and they could see their general as a more suitable emperor than the guy sitting in Rome doing nothing. And this is what will happen a lot in the 3rd century, dozens of times. Rufus was then in this position where he could have become emperor, really easily, we could be talking about Emperor Rufus. And his troops did try to do that twice. He refused. Smart man. Rufus would become the most time-biting time-biter in the history, he would rally against the revolt of Vindex, but no decisive battle took place when he supposedly made a deal. Rufus said that he wouldn't revolt against the emperor, and he wouldn't support anyone in particular. He would just support whoever the people supported. Smart guy again. No counterpurges would come to him, and so he would never be killed for supporting the wrong guy. That thing I was talking about at the beginning of the episode where governors would be scared, he solved that problem by just kind of sitting to the side. What happened next is unknown. Some accounts have it that the legions of Rufus attacked Vindex and his army, not knowing of the agreement that had been made between the two men. The agreement was that Rufus would kind of just sit to the side and let the revolt happen because he would just kind of support whoever the people decided. Who knows how it happened? Maybe one of them lied in the agreement and then did a surprise attack. No agreement took place? Or 
if the agreement was exaggerated. Whatever happened, Vindex ended up dead to suicide. But that couldn't still stop Galba's ascension. Personally, I think that Rufus tried to distance himself from Vindex's death, so as to not displease Galba and future emperors. He wanted to bide his time. He, he did want to be a part of this, and he didn't want Galba to purge him because he killed one of his supporters. And so he would claim, oh yeah, my men attacked him by accident, we made a deal, I would sit to the side, I'm terribly sorry. In any event, at the time of Vindex's revolt, and later in the year, Rufus's armies would try to claim him emperor. But he refused every time, and this was undoubtedly a smart move, since 75% of men who claimed themselves to be emperor this year died. Rufus would end up living another 30 years. His refusal to take power made him a quintessential Roman. And it was his proudest accomplishment. It was written on his tomb. Heading over to Moesia, just north of Greece, Titus Aurelius Fulvus was one of the most experienced commanders in charge of a legion. He had been serving with his legion for like a decade, and so his seniority, his ability, and his influence would break the silence of the Balkan armies as Vespasian declared himself emperor in late 69. His indifference or tacit support for Vitellius could have meant ending the Flavian cause, but his strong support for them allowed it to happen. Because in the end, Fulvus supporting the Flavians was the decisive moment that won the civil war for the Flavians. The Flavian accession could not be countered because it was in part avenging Galba, but he also had Judea and Syria, and now the Balkans especially added to that. Remember, the Balkans had the Danube border. This was a northern river border, just like the Rhine, which had massive tribes sitting on the other side waiting to cross over and invade. So massive armies and important commanders were sitting there. This meant that, ignore the Rhine, we had, at the outset of Vespasian's invasion of Italy, the Syrian legions and the Danube legions. That's two-thirds of the relevant legions of Rome. So of course he would win. And so Fulvus was also the one who would decide here, because Vitellius at least thought that he had the support of the Rhine legions, which means it would have been the Rhine legions against the Syrian legions, but the Danube one sat in the middle, and so he kind of got to decide who won, and he chose Vespasian. And in a way, the Balkan governors were even more important than the Rhine ones because of their central placement within the empire. And so Fulvus's position as the most influential man in the region meant that he was the bellwether for the region. Whichever way he went, everyone else would go. So let's talk about the man of the hour, Titus Flavius Vespasianus. Vespasian was of relatively low birth. And so it was a miracle that he became emperor. He was humble and seemed to never really want more power. He didn't want to be a senator, didn't want to be emperor, everyone had to force him into it. I'm not going to delve deep into him here, since he'll cover Vespasian in his own episode, but for now, you need to know that Vespasian, alongside Galba, is just about the most experienced commander in the empire. He was part of Claudius' invasion of Britain, and he was liked by Nero. Nero didn't even kill him after he fell asleep during one of his performances, which he normally would. Nero liked him enough to appoint him to the most important position in the empire, the war in Judea in 67 AD. At this time, the Jews in Jerusalem revolted, and a large army was needed to suppress that, and so Vespasian and his son was sent. But I'll talk about that in its own episode as well. Let's further discuss the Flavians and their supporters. We first have Gaius Lucinius Musianus. Musianus was the governor of Syria. Musianus reportedly did not like the lowborn Vespasian, so it may have been a purposeful appointment to stick the two of them together. 
so that they couldn't team up for a revolt. Fortunately, they would. Mucianus saw past this, and saw how important it would be to put Vespasian on the throne, because it would make him super important. And ultimately, Mucianus, more than Vespasian, is the reason why Vespasian became emperor. Six legions were split between the two, meaning that something like a quarter of the entire Roman army was there. And it seems that Alexander, the prefect of Egypt, after Galba was deposed, was looking for a new man to support. And so Mucianus, who was also dissatisfied, teamed up with him alongside Vespasian to appoint their own man. Now, eight legions were under this team's control, and they were ready to claim empire. Mucianus reportedly convinced Vespasian to become emperor because he didn't want to. And it was Mucianus's immense influence in backroom politics that made the plan a success. Mucianus convinced Fulvus to join his side. I talked about how important that was. And he made sure all the necessary precautions were in place for a coup. It almost seems like Vespasian was kind of just going along for the ride, while Vespasian took control of all the work needed to become emperor. In the end, Vespasian would stay in Egypt, while Alexander and Mucianus invaded Italy and took it for him. Vespasian only arrived a year later. More than any other rise to power that I know of, this one really was a team effort. And ultimately, Mucianus would be something of a co-emperor. A nearly full emperor for that year-long gap before Vespasian would arrive in Italy. And this is ultimately the reason why Mucianus would stop his hatred for Vespasian. Mucianus didn't feel like he could be emperor himself, but knew that if he put his hatred for Vespasian aside, he could be something like a co-emperor or an heir. He wouldn't become the heir, but let's talk about the heir. Vespasian had two sons, Titus and Domitian who were 30 and 18 at the time of the Year of the Four Emperors. Both of them would peacefully become emperors after Vespasian. Titus, the eldest, was this, nearly the same age as Nero. He was 30. This means that since he was so aristocratic when he was young, he was brought up alongside Nero and the other important men of Rome. He would have been attending the same banquets and events as the emperor. And one of his friends was the son of Claudius, Britannicus. And Titus was probably there sitting beside Britannicus when Nero poisoned him. Titus was beloved by his father, and was brought along to the important posting in the east. And Titus would eventually win the war on behalf of Vespasian, after Vespasian became emperor. And he became loved by all for it, and everyone was waiting for him to become emperor. Titus was very competent, and far surpassed Nero and Otho in ability, the other young men of empire. At the outset of Galba's emperorship, Titus was dispatched to pledge Vespasian's support. But before he got there, Galba was deposed. Titus' ability was on display when he then immediately turned around. This was a tough decision, you may not appreciate this, but it was a tough decision. Because turning around was something of a stub to the new emperor. They knew that Titus was coming to pledge support to the emperor, but he turned around when a new one came along. So this might reflect badly for Vespasian. But at the same time, if this new emperor was somewhat hostile to Vespasian, Titus would end up becoming something of a hostage in Rome, stopping Vespasian from making a play. The other son of Vespasian, conversely, was already a political hostage. And I guess the political hostage thing wasn't too important, or at least it wasn't that important in the case of Domitian because Vespasian invaded regardless. I mean, Domitian almost died, so can't say it's not important, but we'll get to that later. And when I say hostage, it's a bit of an exaggeration. Domitian, who was 18, by the way, was freely living in Rome. I don't think he could leave, but it was kind of just to make Vespasian scared to do anything, saying, we have your son here, don't do anything dumb. 
Domitian's very interesting. I'd love to talk about him, and, and trust me, we will, probably for like half a year. I love Domitian's character, and it's extremely interesting, but for now, we just can't get into it. It's not what this is about, but just note that he was hanging out in Rome, and for the entirety of the year of the four emperors, he was in Rome and saw every new emperor come to power, and we'll see how that affects him later on. Just understand that Domitian has been somewhat disrespected by his father. Titus was the elder child, 12 years his senior, and was obviously the heir to Vespasian. Titus was in the east, winning the biggest military victory in 30 years, while Domitian was chilling in Rome, not allowed to enter politics. He was only 18, but still, he was greatly inferior to Titus. That must have generated some sort of complex for the young man. Alongside Domitian in Rome was Sabinus. Sabinus was Vespasian's brother. Sabinus was extremely important. He served in Claudius' invasion of Britain alongside Vespasian. He was a governor on the Danube, and we've talked about how important that was. For almost all of Nero's reign, Sabinus was something like the mayor of Rome. And you can appreciate how important that is. He led troops in the city. He led troops where the emperor was, which means that the emperor's safety was kind of in his hands. So you couldn't put someone untrustworthy in this position. So he, he was really important. And so you're supposed to count on the fact that the mayor of Rome wouldn't rise up and revolt, but he, he did. He probably took part in the Pisodian conspiracy, but just wasn't caught. And it seems that at the time of Galba's ascension, he may have been trying to make a play for empire, but he acquiesced to Galba in the end. Galba was smart enough to replace him, but then Otho would reinstate him. But then eventually, the Vitellians would kill him. That's a super fun incident. Fun's probably not the right word. It's a super interesting incident, and there'll probably be a whole episode because it's all about the mission as well. And we'll get to that in like a month. All right, let's review. We have the omnipresent push and pull of the Senate, Praetorians, and the Emperor, in which Nero was surviving on a nice edge. The tentative security meant that usurpation had to come from the provinces. We have Galba, the elder governor of eastern Spain. We have Otho, the young and entitled governor of western Spain. We have Vindex, the native governor of western Gaul, who wanted anybody but Nero to be emperor. We have Rufus, the survival-minded governor of Germania, who stopped Vindex's revolt and never claimed emperorship for himself and watched from the sidelines. We have Alexander, the Jewish prefect of Egypt, who was self-assured and always supported the best candidate for emperor. We have Fulvis, the bellwether legate in the Balkans, who was key as a supporter of Vespasian to get the Danube legions on side. We have Musianus, the governor of Syria, who masterminded Vespasian's ascension. And finally, we have Vespasian and his family. Vespasian and Titus were fighting the Jewish revolt in Judea, and Misianus pulled Vespasian over to become emperor. Domitian and Sabinus, on the other hand, were in Rome, seeing the turncoat of emperors for the year, for better or worse. And that's where we sit. Nero, Galba, Otho, Vindex, Rufus, Alexander, Misianus, Fulvus, Vespasian, Titus, Sabinus, and Domitian. By December 69, five of them will be dead. Notably, the Emperor Vitellius is not present. He'll only show his face next time, since he only becomes relevant after Galba appoints him to be governor in place of Rufus, which is kind of crazy that within a matter of months, he went from appointed governor to emperor. If you want to ask me questions or leave suggestions for the podcast, head on over to my de facto website, the 9680 subreddit. Just head over to reddit.com slash r slash 96AD. You can find the link in the podcast description. I'll be posting updates about the podcast there, and I'll respond to anybody who posts there or messages me. Another thing you'll find on the subreddit is a PayPal donate button. 
This is not required or expected. This podcast will remain free and I don't aim to profit. However, donations will cover the cost of production and will support me, a student who is attempting to study, work, and produce the podcast all at once for some reason. In two weeks, we'll talk about the start of the Year of the Four Embers. I'm not sure how far we'll get into it or ultimately how this is going to be split among the episodes. We'll see, but I'll try to get up to the ascension of Vitellius because it really gets interesting once Vespasian comes into play. I'll see you then.